1: Welcome to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm your host, Jason Greenblatt. With tensions rising across the world, diplomacy is needed perhaps now more than ever. During my time as former White House Middle East Envoy and as one of the chief architects of peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, I've had the chance to witness the power of diplomacy firsthand, and today I would like to share that perspective with you. Shalom, Salam, and welcome to The Diplomat. My guest today is Jeremy Bash, who served as Chief of Staff at the U.S. Department of Defense from 2011 to 2013 and as Chief of Staff at the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, from 2009 through 2011. In both cases, he helped oversee a range of national security, defense, and intelligence issues. Jeremy, you have had some really critical jobs to the United States of America, cool jobs, I would say, in the Department of Defense and the CIA. And I want to start with what's of your everybody's mind around the world today, which is Russia. I understand that President Biden and the Biden administration warned the world. You know, they collected intelligence, they shared intelligence about the possible invasion. But before that, do you think that this really took everybody by surprise? Did people in 2022 think to themselves we're past the age where other countries, where countries invade other countries and try to take some or all of them over?
0: First, Jason, it's great to be on, on this podcast with you. And and I, I want to pay tribute to your distinguished record of public service and 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 thanks for having me on. I think your question actually illuminates something that that is is very relevant to understand the current conflict, which is that for the most part, of the last several Several years, the the dominant national security issue uh, has been thinking about China's rise and about uh, and about what not a force on force conflict would look like in the traditional sense, but what asymmetric conflict looks like in the context of China. And I know maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. And I think the view to your question was that. Yeah, the idea that that one country would invade and take over another country was sort of from a bygone era. We haven't seen anything like this since Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in August of 1990, and there, you know, Kuwait was a a much smaller country, and and Iraq obviously was was a much smaller country than Russia. We have not seen a nuclear armed country take over and invade another country, and. Doing so on the doorstep of NATO obviously presents enormous challenges for the West and the United States. So, so to some degree, um, this aggression by Putin was a little bit out of step with what we consider the norm in international relations. However, I would I want to hasten to add that most people who've been analyzing and studying Putin's modus vivendi for many years have noted that he has not just been dissuaded from conducting military operations in Georgia in Syria, in Ukraine, in the East, and he believed that uh, as he got more isolated over COVID, he believed that this was his moment to act against Ukraine, which he believed was a sort of a rogue threat to him. And so, I think many analysts who were analyzing this did, in fact, envisage a, uh, a military operation. But I would say, I would say, Jason, final point on this, which is. Even after we revealed all the intelligence and we knew that Russia had massed its forces on the border, most smart analysts I was talking to only put it at 25 percent that Putin would try to go all the way to Kyiv, And they thought that the weight of evidence showed that he would stage some more limited military invasion and and try to uh, gain concessions after backing off from that. But he went the whole way, as we know, and obviously he's now done so to tragic consequences and it has mobilized the West.
1: So you mentioned NATO. Let's talk about NATO for a couple of minutes. During President Trump's campaign, one of his points was that the European countries that are part of it, at least some of them, weren't contributing their share of the budget for NATO. I was shocked when he said it. You know, he has this way of um, hitting the nail on the head in very short, clear ways, whether people like how he speaks, don't like how he speaks. He gets the point across quickly. Do you think that NATO today make sense? Or do you think it's an outdated program that sort of needs to be revamped? And Ukraine is a good example of this. Ukraine is not part of the NATO club and therefore not being defended. Lots of aid going to them, weapons, certainly a lot of condemnations, but they aren't part of this organization. And now as part of the ceasefire talks, if they're even going on in a serious way, they're demanding security guarantees, which effectively, is uh, a variation of NATO. So, should NATO be looked at again? Is it outdated? And are there any other ways around a NATO type of alliance?
0: NATO is absolutely indispensable. It, it is not outdated. In fact, it's more relevant today given Russia's aggression than and maybe at any other time since the Cold War, since the Berlin Wall fell. And I would say that, like any alliance, like any structure in, in, in business or in government. It always needs to be revamped and modernized and updated to deal with the threats of the time, and so expanding NATO has been a hallmark of U.S. foreign policy on a bipartisan basis, going all the way back to the George H.W. Uh, Bush forty-one era, in which the NATO expansion program began. And as the United States and the West has added countries to NATO, it's really been a, we've been able to expand our uh, strategic alliance with several countries. It's made our economies more interdependent and it's really facilitated uh, growth of of a stronger transatlantic unity. I think President Trump's articulation of the situation with respect to defense spending in Europe was accurate. And it was also consistent on a bipartisan basis with what secretaries of defense and presidents have been saying for at least as long as I've been involved in government. And, And I remember when I served in the Pentagon, Secretary Panetta and Secretary Gates before him used to have this as one of their top three talking points whenever they would engage defense ministers and and NATO senior leaders. So unfortunately, but maybe a silver lining of this crisis has been that it's resulted in increased defense spending by the Germans and by other countries in Europe. But Jason, I think the fundamental answer to your question is that No, I don't think NATO is outdated. I think it's it is very necessary. And it's really been it is the thing that is preventing Putin from being adventurous with respect to Poland, with respect to uh, the Baltics and with respect to other vulnerable countries like Romania along uh, along that eastern flank.
1: That's true. I guess people aren't focused so much on the preventative concept of NATO and uh, Putin's adventurism further westward. So I understand that.
0: But they should be. I mean, that's the point, which is I think if Putin felt that he could get away with using military might to threaten or invade or take territory uh, in his quote near abroad, because that's that's the phrase that the Kremlin always uses, "our near abroad," meaning this is our sphere of influence. In the United States, get the heck out, and uh, and and that's why it's it's critically important that the U.S. Uh, the U.S. maintain very strong relationships with NATO. I I have to say, because, you know, um, we were talking, you were talking a little bit about president Trump's approach on, on NATO. And I do think that, that one area where I, where I find myself disagreeing um, with the approach was, was, He I think he took the criticisms of NATO a couple clicks too far where he basically said, I'm not sure the United States should be in NATO and I'm not sure we really need this alliance. And I think that um, that sent the wrong signal because it it caused those countries to question whether the U.S. would really have their back. At the end of the day, Jason, this is about the U.S. having the back of those smaller countries. And in the face of Russian aggression, Russia developing hypersonic weapons, Russia engaging in hybrid warfare, Russia is still a major nuclear power. Know that having their back is absolutely critical in my view.
1: We're going to take a break. You have been listening to The Diplomat brought to you by Newsweek.
0: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? (laughs) Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend and save what you believe in every single day.
1: Welcome back to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm here with Jeremy Bash today talking about Ukraine, Russia, North Korea, Iran, the Middle East, and more. So I'm glad you used the phrase having their back. Uh, As somebody who spent three years working in and studying the Middle East, I don't think the current administration seems to have the back of the Middle East, Uh, certainly our friends and allies. And of course, there's no NATO uh, architecture there. Do you feel that the... Biden administration should be doing more to protect our friends and allies in the Middle East standing by them beyond mere condemnations? And if so, what would your advice be to the Biden administration about that?
0: Well, first of all, I want to pay tribute to the amazing work that you and your teammates did in, in bringing the Abraham Accords uh, to light uh, or, or, or into existence, I should say. And, um, and that diplomatic achievement, I think, is is really, at the end of the day, um, one of the most significant and lasting achievements the United States has undertaken with respect to Middle East diplomacy. And so that is an incredible legacy, Jason, that, that again, I want to pay tribute to you and your teammates for undertaking. Um it I, I said the words bring it to light because <laughs> I, I'm laughing, but, but those of us who have been working on Middle East issues like you for many years know that actually there was always these diplomatic ties between Israel and and, uh, and the UAE, Israel and, and Bahrain, Israel and Morocco, Israel and even Saudi Arabia, and Israel and other countries, Israel and Jordan, certainly Israel and, and Egypt as, as part of the the, the Camp David Accords, but they were a little bit more in the shadows. They were not always discussed in fancy international conferences, and there was a there was always a sort of a, a question of how much Israel wanted to go in in pressing the Arab states to step out and and make this public. and And so, I think backing the Abraham Accords structure and backing the diplomatic ties between Israel and the Arab states uh, in its region in the Middle East is absolutely critical. And I think the Biden administration strongly supports the Abraham Accords from from what I've been, uh, from my discussions with senior Biden administration officials. But I think there's always more that we can do and always more that they should do. I think what your question uh, points to, and I I agree with with the premise, is that I do believe that some of our Gulf Arab countries don't think the United States is fully in their corner with respect to the threats posed by Iran. And I think we need to do a better job of showing in particular, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, that we understand the threat posed by a nuclear armed Iran, by an Iran that engages in malign influence around the region, by an Iran that engages in terrorism, by an Iran that tries to close the uh, the Straits of Hormuz and the Persian Gulf and attack uh, shipping vessels, an Iran that uh, spreads hate, anti-Semitism, and uh, and and is is a nefarious force in the world, and you know. If you're sitting in the Gulf and you're looking across the Arabian Gulf, as they would call it, not the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Gulf uh, at 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 Iran, you're seeing a country that is um, that stands for everything that the United States stands against in terms of our values and that the U.S. doesn't seem to always have the back of those those Arab countries. And I would say with respect to Israel, because this is another important issue, um, I do believe that the United States I strongly believe the United States has Israel's back. It's obviously a bipartisan commitment that the U.S. has had to Israel ever since President Truman recognized Israel's existence uh, several minutes after Israel made that infamous and 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 hugely significant uh, declaration uh, of its statehood. But um, but I think there there it has waxed and waned, and I think um, I think sometimes we've pressured Israel to take risks beyond where they're comfortable going. And I don't think there's a Palestinian partner right now that, that Israel could really undertake a peace process with. And the recent attacks in Israel, the horrible terrorist attacks only underscore the, the significant risk from terrorism that Israel still faces.
1: Indeed. Terrible attacks, 11 dead, 11 murdered in cold blood over the last week or so. Um, your, your experience with terrorism, counterterrorism is deep. You were part of the CIA's senior management team overseeing the operation that killed the notorious terrorist and mastermind of the September 11th attacks, Osama bin Laden. What do you think the biggest terror threats are today and where are they coming from?
0: I think the terror threat has metastasized. I think, let's start first with Al-Qaeda, the organization that attacked us on 9-11, has largely been decapitated. However, new leaders have come up in the ranks and the number two, the longtime number two in Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahri, is still at large. and Al-Qaeda still presents a threat to the United States. Uh, There has been Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. There has been Al-Qaeda elements across the Middle East and Al-Qaeda elements in Africa, but also uh, in East Africa. And I would say that the threat of ISIS and ISIS elements primarily in Syria along the Syria-Iraq axis still presents a threat to U.S. forces, to U.S. allies, to Israel and to, uh, and to the United States homeland. And, and, and so I think the terror threat remains one that we need to stay very focused on. We need to collect intelligence, we need to run sources, we need to analyze that intelligence, we need to devote resources to kinetic operations against terrorism. I think that the takedown of, of Abu Bakr, uh, that al-Baghdadi that occurred during the Trump administration was a major achievement in against ISIS. And I think likewise, The takedown of the leader of ISIS, the emir of ISIS in Syria by the Biden administration recently with a special operations uh, army led activity in Syria, uh, similarly was a major blow to ISIS. And I think we got to keep at it. We have to keep the pressure on. And in my experience, there's nothing more effective than just taking terrorists off the battlefield, period, full stop.
1: So let's then talk about North Korea. I have CNN on in the background as I work all day. And the vast majority of coverage is Ukraine, which makes a lot of sense. You know, they covered Will Smith and the Oscars. They covered the terrorist (laughs) attacks in Israel, which they should have. You know, lots of topics. And they did, of course, that day cover this North Korea missile test. (laughs) And then it just disappeared. How much of a threat is that missile test to our friends and allies there and even to the United States? Because the little reporting that was done was suggesting that those missiles could actually reach the continental United States. And yet nobody's talking about it anymore.
0: Thank you for raising it. It's it's enormously significant. So this missile test that was conducted was an ICBM test, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Test. And the the height of the, the the trajectory was about, you know, I, w- I would say it was about two thousand three hundred miles up into the atmosphere. And if you think about it, I mean, that is that's much higher than, you know, the International Space Station, which is like 200 miles up. So, you know, just think about something that went 10 times higher than the International Space Station. Now, what is uh, what is also significant is that this was not the first ICBM test by North Korea. Um, In 2017, North Korea flight tested two ICBMs, one right after the other, if you'll recall. And those also had a trajectory in the thousands of miles uh, in terms of the atmosphere height. And again, if you just flatten out that trajectory, because obviously they were flying at high, so it would land closer to their territory. But if you flatten it out, the analysis was that it could hit could hit certainly Hawaii, could hit Alaska, and probably could hit California and most places in the U.S. mainland, in our our homeland, in the continental United States. So this is an enormous threat. Now, North Korea for many years has had enough bomb fuel to make several dozen nuclear weapons i've seen estimates range from 20 to 60 to 80 nuclear weapons so they've got the nuclear weapons material they've got the icbm technology what they haven't yet gotten is the ability to meet the two and put the weapon on top of the uh, icbm and the ability to survive a re-entry into the at- into the atmosphere after launching into space but they're darn close jason and it's too close for comfort in my view and so i do think to your point We need to pay a lot more attention to this problem. Uh, There's a a cycle here where, where the leader of North Korea kind of goes quiet for a little while and then gets provocative to try to get attention. And once he gets attention, he kind of goes quiet for a little while. And so we're in one of these more provocative cycles right now.
1: Last question, Jeremy. I want to take it back to Ukraine and NATO, since you know a lot about NATO. This security commitment that Ukraine is seeking as part of a potential resolution to the war, to the attack on Ukraine... To President Putin, how much different would that look from NATO? Meaning, is that something that he would just view as uh, a different way to say the same thing? And would he accept it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think in this context, it would be a different way to say the same thing. It would be a de facto NATO membership. It would create a, a obligation by NATO countries and by the United States to defend Ukraine. And it would be a signal warning to Putin to stay out. So I think... Uh, I think it's a very good, beneficial thing for the United States and the West to pursue with Ukraine. And if I were Ukraine, frankly, I wouldn't want anything less because I think even if Russia realizes that it's botched invasion is not worth the cost and they somehow back off. And I don't think they're going to. In fact, I think they could escalate. But even if they do back off, if I were the Ukrainians, I wouldn't trust Putin for a second and I wouldn't trust him to stay on his side of the line. For a second, I'd want to make sure that has Ukraine has the military capability and the the military diplomatic and security backing from the West. I would just say, Jason, in in conclusion about Ukraine, which is the stakes are enormous. I've been sort of referring to this as World War 2.5. I think this is a huge contest between the West and our model uh, and, and the democratic model versus Putinism and tyranny and the tactics, the ugly tactics, the brutal tactics of of what Putin's trying to visit on Ukraine. And I think if we somehow shrink from this challenge and we allow Putin to occupy and subjugate Ukraine and have his will on the doorstep of NATO, candidly, I think it will be the end of NATO. I think it will be the end of the West's ability to protect countries. I think it could be even the end of the Westphalian concept of nation state integrity, that you can defend your own borders and that a country just can't invade you at will. And that, you know, the concept that might just doesn't make right in the year 2022, I think it will be the end to all of those norms and all those paradigms. And I think we'll be looking at a very dark scenario in which China and other tyr- tyrannical regimes are emboldened. I think you can say bye bye to Taiwan. And I think you're going to be looking at other countries in Europe that will feel enormously threatened. And this will create more security challenges for the United States than anything I can imagine. So I think we have to, we have to win. And by win, I mean, we have to win the economic war, the information war, the cyber war, and the indirect military war to support Ukraine and get Russia to pull back.
1: Jeremy Bash, thank you for joining me. Thank you for sharing your insight. The world is a mess right now. So your points are helping my listeners understand the world a little bit more clearly. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you so much, Jason. And and thanks for the opportunity to be with you.
1: You've been listening to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm your host, Jason Greenblatt. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay safe.